I think there's a few other people that may be coming up from downstairs, but we'll get going. For those of you who maybe don't know me, um, my name's Ruth, um, and along with my family who take up two entire tables, um, we've been a part of the community here at Redeemer for the last three years. I grew up here, I grew up in Bangor, and um, in the late 1990s, I went to Scotland for university, and somehow, 20 years later, I found myself still there. Don't entirely know how that happened. Um, we had a brief hiatus in Texas, but other than that, we spent most of those 20 years in and around Aberdeen. And by the grace of God, we left Aberdeen, and three years ago, we came back to the land of wonderful people and wonderful food and avocado salads, and we came back here, and we've been part of Redeemer ever since. But if I'm honest, it's only really been in the last probably six months to a year that we've really felt that this place was home because six months after we arrived, COVID hit. And so between COVID and kids doing exams and all those things, we weren't really here an awful lot for that first wee bit. But we're here and we're settled and this, I can thankfully say, is home for us now. And so a little while ago, Dave asked me, would I consider speaking as part of this series um, on hearing from different voices in the community. And the first thing that came to mind when he, he said that to me as a topic was beauty. And I recognise that that's maybe a little bit left field as far as topics go, but it's actually something that for me has been front and centre of my faith journey for about the last eight years or so. I mentioned that as a family, we lived in Houston, Texas for a couple of years, and when we were there, we were part of a church community, and that community has six rhythms that as a community they live by. Six rhythms that as a church they prioritize, and they say, this is who we are, this is what we're about. And one of those rhythms is to seek beauty. And when we first went there, there was a lot of things about that church. I was sharing with Dan and Dave um, just last week that our first Sunday we walked in and Josh was leading worship in a Stetson. So we definitely knew we were in Texas and we were thinking, what is this weird church? But the, this idea of seeking beauty and the pursuit of beauty stood out for me as also being quite weird. There's so many things that a church can focus on and there are so many things that a church can prioritize. And so to put beauty front and center, I just, I guess for me, that was a little weird. And I think that's because for me growing up, I had been in a church and a family and a community environment where the pursuit of beauty, almost there was a distrust of it. For want of a better word, it was maybe seen as a little bit frivolous. And that idea of the pursuit of beauty being somehow less than actually goes all the way back to the Reformation. Post-Reformation, when the newly formed Protestant church came into existence, there was really a move away from the beauty and the art of the Catholic church. Art was viewed with suspicion, and, and the suspicion really was that, that people would be so overwhelmed with the beauty of the beautiful thing that they would focus on and worship the beautiful thing rather than the creator of the beautiful thing. Does that make sense? And so the Protestant church at that time really became honestly much more utilitarian. Church buildings became much more utilitarian. 
hymns that were written in that period were like mini theological sermons. And, and a belief that cerebral knowledge superseded all kind of emotive responses to God very much became the norm. And the church and the family that I grew up in certainly embraced that belief. And I really don't think that I'm alone in that. In fact, interestingly, this week, two, diff two different people have posted things on social media, one who I know and one who I don't, about this idea of, of beauty and, and, and of the idea of, of emotively kind of responding to God being something that we were taught wasn't okay. So I don't think I'm alone in that. I was taught that what you believed about God was more important than what you experienced or felt of God. And therefore, the beauty of God, if we think of that as an idea, was really something that was to be theologized rather than experienced. And yet, that doesn't really make sense because beauty is something that elicits an emotive response from us, a heart response rather than a head response. Beauty changes something in us. It softens us. It awakens us. It makes us alive. We feel. We experience. And we're changed by it. Now, I'm right side brain dominant and so for me that means that emotive responses are quite natural but I was taught that growing up that that letting go and letting you feel your emotions letting the emotions or the feelings or the experiences take over wasn't really to be trusted what was concrete was what we trusted the knowledge the beliefs the facts that was what we relied on now, I recognize that not everyone is right-side brain-dominant. I, I know there's people in this room who are left-side brain-dominant. And if that's you, you will appreciate logic and facts and reason much more so. Maths, science, spreadsheets, all those things that I don't really understand. That's your love language, and that's fine. But I really think that beauty has something for all of us. And I have become more and more convinced as the years have gone on that beauty is something that can draw me and can draw us closer to God. And I also think that we are all, certainly at times, beauty deficient. We might be beauty deficient because we've been taught that it's less important, that it's frivolous, that it's it's not as important as acquiring knowledge or developing belief. We might be beauty deficient because we are left side brain dominant and it's just not so natural for us to stop and smell the roses. It's not so natural for us to, to see that. We are much more naturally inclined to seek out the reason and the logic. We might be beauty deficient because trauma and pain have blunted our senses. And so we just don't see it anymore. Or maybe sometimes we're beauty deficient because life is just life. It's busy, but it's monotonous. We might be beauty deficient because we just don't take the time to stop and see it. 
So I've said this before from the front, one of my greatest loves in life is poetry. And one of my favourite poems is composed upon Westminster Bridge by William, William Wordsworth. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that poem, but it's a poem which takes in the sights of the city of London first thing in the morning, kind of first morning light. Wordsworth wrote this poem in 1802, and if there's one thing that in 1802 that London was not, it was beautiful. It was right in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, and London was dirty and grimy and busy and noisy and full of smog, and just it was just not a nice place. And yet Wordsworth, who was a romantic poet, and he most often wrote about nature, if you don't know Composed Upon Westminster Bridge, you'll probably know his most famous poem, Daffodils. And he most often took his inspiration for his poems from the area he lived in, in the Lake District. But he still saw beauty in this. He saw beauty in London. The beauty of London was there, but it was obscured. It was obscured by the dirt and the grime and the smoke and the noise, but Wordsworth chose to see past that. He chose to see the beauty that was underneath. And the question that I guess I've been pondering for the last eight years and which I want to pose today is, what if we chose, made a conscious choice to see beauty in our daily lives? What if we, what if we chose to, to stop? and to pause, and to see the beauty, would it make a difference to us? Would it make a difference to who we are? Would we be softened by it? What if we allowed ourselves to be softened by it, to allow ourselves to respond with feeling and emotion with our hearts, not our heads? Pope Benedict, and this is not a direct quote, but he said, the dominant effect of beauty is to give us a healthy shock which draws us out of ourselves and the rut we sometimes find ourselves in due to the daily routine or the monotony of life. Because let's be honest, life is not always flowers and sunsets and stunning music in the background and art on the walls. Sometimes it is and those times are wonderful, but that is not life most of the time. Jude was asking the kids about their summer, and we as a family have had a fantastic summer, and it genuinely has been filled with sunsets and beautiful music and friends and laughter, and it's just been amazing. But this week, we came back to earth with a bump, because while some of you are still in holiday mode with the bank holiday tomorrow, school started this week. And so we are back to getting up really early in the morning, making sure uniform is on, making sure everything is ready and our bags are packed. Now we're only two days in, and we're, so we're still excited, and we've still got new teachers and new subjects and new friends, and it's great. But we all know that's not going to last. We all know that in a couple of weeks, we're not going to be so excited at getting up at 5.30 in the morning to make sure we can be out the door to catch that train at 20 past 7. We all know that we're not going to be excited about filling in new cast forms day after day after day and fine-tuning that personal statement to make the universities want us. We all know that we're not going to be excited about packing the suitcase or packing the school bag, and we're certainly not going to be excited about making packed lunches because that is the bane of my life. Because life comes with ups and downs. 
and it comes with highs and it comes with lows. But more often than anything else, life is just life. It's busy, but it's monotonous. And whatever that is for you, and it might be school or work or farming or houses or cars or bills shopping or cooking or cleaning or laundry, day in, day out, it is just the same. And it's in that rut, it's in that rut that we so often find ourselves in that I believe beauty can make a difference. Beauty can give us, like Pope Benedict said, that healthy shock to draw us out of ourselves. And beauty really is everywhere if we choose to see it. Beauty can be in the sunsets. Beauty can also be in the, in the sunshine coming through the slats in the blind on your office window and making patterns on the wall. And beauty can be in the beautiful gardens, but it can also be in the weed coming up from the crack in the ground and creating a little bit of greenery in amongst a grey footpath. But being drawn out of ourselves is not the end of the process. There's a 5th century scholar who is now known as Pseudo-Dionysius of Areopagite. I have practiced that name all week. And he says in his writing, The Celestial Hierarchy, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. We know that's James 1.17. And he says, more often... Every divine procession of radiance from the Father, while constantly, bounteously flowing to us, fills us anew as though with a unifying power by recalling us to things above and leading us to the unity of the shepherding Father and the divine one. Now, let's be really clear. Dionysius likes to use a lot of words where he could have just used about three. Because what he means is beauty comes from God and beauty draws us back to God. Laron Schultz, who's a professor of theology and philosophy in Norway, puts it this way. He says, God is the absolute beautiful. And I love that. God is the absolute beautiful. And when God gives us glimpses of beauty, he's giving us glimpses of himself. And scripture is full of examples of the beauty of God. His creativity and his creation, his gifts, his triune relationship, his relationship with his people, restoration, healing, life. Our God is the absolute beautiful. And when we see beauty, it draws us closer to him. And choosing to see that beauty is an example that was set for us by the very embodiment of the absolute beautiful in Jesus himself. We're going to read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And um, the words are going to be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. I'm going to be reading from the voice translation. And it says this, Once a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to be a guest for a meal. Just picture this. Just as Jesus enters the man's home and takes his place at the table, a woman from the city, notorious as a woman of ill repute, follows him in. 
She has heard that Jesus will be at the Pharisee's home, so she comes in and approaches him, carrying an alabaster flask of perfumed oil. Then she begins to cry, and she kneels down so her tears fall on Jesus' feet, and she starts wiping his feet with her own hair. Then she actually kisses his feet, and she pours the perfumed oil on them. And Simon is thinking, now I know this guy is a fraud. If he were a real prophet, he would have known this woman is a sinner, and he would never let her get near him, much less touch him or kiss him. Jesus, knowing what the Pharisee is thinking, says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. Tell me, teacher. And Jesus says, two men owed a certain lender a lot of money. One owed 100 weeks' wages and the other owed 10 weeks' wages. Both men defaulted on their loans, but the lender forgave them both. Now, here's a question for you. Which man will love the lender more? And Simon says, well, I guess it would be the one who was forgiven more. Good answer, said Jesus. And now Jesus turns around, so he's facing the woman, although he's still speaking to Simon, and he says, do you see this woman here? It's kind of funny. I entered your home and you didn't provide a basin of water so I could wash the road dust from my feet. You didn't give me a customary kiss of greeting and welcome. You didn't offer me the common courtesy of providing oil to brighten my face. But this woman, this woman has wet my feet with her own tears and washed them with her own hair she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. And she has applied perfumed oil to my feet. This woman has been forgiven much, and she is showing much love. But the person who has shown little love shows how little forgiveness he has received. And he turned to the woman and he said, Your sins are forgiven. And Simon and his friends muttered among themselves, who does this guy think he is? He has the audacity to claim the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has liberated you. Go in peace. Now that's a familiar story to anyone who's grown up in the church. It's a story that's taught from Sunday school flannel graphs, if you're old enough to remember those, and in children's Bibles to pulpits and street corners. And it's the story of a woman whose identity was as a sinner. This translation puts it as a woman of ill repute. That was how she was identified. We are not even told her name. But Jesus saw something different in her. Jesus saw beauty. If we can just go back to poetry, just for a moment, and I promise this is the last poetry lesson I'm going to give you today. There's another romantic poet um, called John Keats. And Keats lived and wrote around about the same time as Wordsworth in the early 1800s. And he had a really strong sense of the importance of beauty and the pursuit of beauty. For him, beauty in all forms was his pole star. It was his guiding light. It was what he lived for. And he wrote, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. 
And he was known for appreciating beauty for beauty's sake. He didn't try to moralize or theologize it. He simply appreciated what it gave to him and to the world. And Keats lived quite a poor existence. Both his parents lost their lives to ill health when he was quite young, and he himself died at age 25 from tuberculosis. And so he lived in poverty, but in his latter years, he also lived in ill health. And so for Keats, beauty gave him that healthy shock that Pope Benedict spoke of to draw him away from his circumstances and out of the rut of his life. He saw beauty in everything. He wrote this. He wrote, I have loved the principle of beauty in all things. And you know, I kind of think that's something that Jesus could have said because Jesus saw beauty in all things. And most significantly, Jesus saw beauty in all people. And we saw that at the story of the woman at Simon's house. But there's another facet to Keats' pursuit of beauty that I think is really, really key here. His pursuit of beauty was also a pursuit of truth. Keats really grasped the oneness of beauty and truth. And he wrote this, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. And he also wrote, I am certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of imagination. What the imagination seizes as beauty must be truth. And his logic was really simple. What is beautiful is truthful. And what is truthful is beautiful. And I was reminded just yesterday of Paul writing to the church at Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, fill your minds with beauty and truth. And that's what we're talking about, isn't it? This idea of when we seek beauty and when we find it, we also find truth. And in the Gospels, we see a Jesus who was inherently beautiful. We see a man who drew people to himself because he exuded beauty. And people saw that beauty and that truth and they wanted something more of it. We see a man who people followed for days on end with no food or who climbed trees or who cut holes in the roofs of houses to be near him or who were prepared to embarrass themselves in front of the great and good of the city, just like the woman at Simon's house, just to be near him. Jesus was and is the absolute beautiful Jesus was and is the absolute truth. Jesus was beautiful in the way he stopped to listen to people. He was beautiful in the way he healed and restored people. He was beautiful in the way he offered hope in his teaching. And he was beautiful in the way he fed people physically as well as spiritually. And he was beautiful in the way he saw people. 
because he saw beauty in them. He saw truth. He saw the person made in the image of God beautiful and true. And that moment that we read about in Simon's house was a moment of beauty. And Simon missed it. Simon missed it because he was so focused on the sin of the woman that he missed the beauty in her. And he was so focused on being offended by Jesus that he missed the beauty in him. And that takes us right back to where we started, missing the beauty that is right in front of us. Whether it's pain and trauma that numbs and blinds us to beauty, or the busyness of life that means we miss it because we just don't stop to pay attention, or whether it's sin that clouds our vision, just like it did with Simon, we can so easily miss the beauty of God. And if we miss the beauty, we miss the benefits of the beauty. Because beauty does do something to us. It changes us. It softens us. It draws us towards truth and towards God. And I just want to say something really, really important here. If you're going through a period of trauma, of pain, of darkness, if you feel numb and blind to beauty because of difficult circumstances, please hear me really, really clearly. I am not saying that pursuing beauty will fix everything. I'm not saying we should ever plaster over our pain and our trauma with the pursuit of shallow beauty. Pain and trauma are real and they really, really need to be identified, acknowledged and worked through. I don't want to diminish that at all. But I do want to say that beauty can be a gift, however small. In periods of darkness, beauty can be pinpricks of light that help us to just keep going until we are ready to see the greater light that is to come. Because the beauty that we see in Jesus is a beauty that restores us. It's a beauty that is therapeutic and leads to restoration, not just eternal restoration, not just in a salvation in the time to come, but a restoration for the here and now, a restoring of our souls and our minds, and yes, even our bodies. When we breathe, when we pause, when we stop, that physically does something in our bodies, as well as our minds and our hearts and our souls. When we embrace and experience the beauty of Jesus in him and in the world he created, we are given a gift that softens us and heals us. When we glimpse beauty in the world around us, we are glimpsing God and we are restored. But again, we don't stop there. That isn't the end of the process. Just like being drawn out of ourselves was not the end of the process, being drawn closer to God isn't actually the end of the process either. Because we are called to share the beauty we see with the world around us. 
C.S. Lewis puts it like this. We do not merely, we, want, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that bounty is enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it, to receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it, to become part of it. Now consider that the beauty we see is a reflection of God. It's a reflection of the Jesus that we follow. We want to be united with the Jesus we see. To pass into him. To receive him into ourselves. To bathe in him. To become part of him. God is the absolute beautiful and Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's beauty to us. And when we choose to seek beauty, to stop, to pause, to take some time to breathe in and to breathe out, when we open our eyes to the beauty in the world around us and in the people that we meet, just as Jesus saw the beauty, just as Wordsworth saw the beauty that was obscured in London, we can draw closer to the absolute beautiful. But we can also receive that beauty into ourselves and in turn embody it and share it with the world around us. And so this week, I challenge you, challenge myself to slow down, to pause, to intentionally seek beauty and to consider how we can embody that beauty and whisper it to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect example of the absolute beautiful, that we have this amazing picture of what it is to be beautiful and that we can know you personally, and that we can, we can learn about you, and we can, we can acquire all this knowledge about you, but we can also experience you. We can experience your beauty, and your beauty can change us. Jesus, this week, as we go out into the world, with its busyness and with its monotony, with its joy and its light and its pain and its trauma. Jesus, would you give us the gift of beauty? Would you give us those pinpricks of light that we can cling to? Would you draw us closer to you and draw us back to the beautiful one? And would you fill us with your beauty that we would be able to whisper it? to the world. Amen. And it's with that thought of receiving the beauty of Jesus into ourselves in readiness to share it with the world around us that we come to the table this morning. The table is the perfect example of the beauty of Jesus. It's open to all who desire to come. It's a place of restoring. It's a place of hope.
a place of unity and equality, and it's a place of feasting. It's a generous table. It doesn't run out and it doesn't run dry. It is the gift of a generous God. And so we're going to come to the table now, and we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. Um, The table is a really beautiful practice. And it's a practice that's made more beautiful because we do it in community. It's not something that we do alone. We do it as we stand with our brothers and sisters and we remember the generosity of the God who unites all of us as one. And so Dave's going to play and as they play, I'm going to ask you to come forward and receive communion this morning from your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to ask, um, Libby's going to come up and she's going to have the bread. Jude's going to have the wine and Ben's going to have the juice. And when they come up, when you come up, just take from their trays and they're just going to speak a blessing over you. And then go back to your seats and we will join together as a community in liturgy and in receiving the elements. Dave.